are listening to the Pax Palestine podcast, a podcast that features interviews with some of the local Palestinian partners of Pax, a peace organization based in the Netherlands. Pax works together with committed citizens and partners to protect civilians against acts of war, to end armed violence and to build a just peace. In Palestine, Pax supports local partners in building resilient communities, promoting human security and equality in the political, cultural and social domain, and in fighting the injustices resulting from the protracted occupation. My name is Crystal and I'm your host. I am a Dutch citizen living in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and two children. Besides running a cafe and a bar in Bethlehem, I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. For Pax, I produced this special trilogy of interviews with the local partners that Pax supports. This is the third and last episode of the Pax for Palestine podcast trilogy. In this episode, I speak with George Zaidan and May Gerard about the work of Danish Church Aid and the East Jerusalem YMCA in the South Hebron Hills. Welcome, George. Thank you for being part of the Pax Palestine podcast. Before we start talking about Danish Church Aid, one of the partners of Pax, can you just introduce yourself? My name is George Zidane. I work for Danish and Norwegian Church Aid Office in Jerusalem. I'm a program manager. I manage projects involving youth and community-based initiatives, as well as media. I'm a Palestinian, born and raised in the old city of Jerusalem, and currently in Bethlehem, in a small town next to Bethlehem called Bejala, southwest of Jerusalem. George, you work for Danish Church Aid, one of the partners of Pax, and in partnership with and through the East Jerusalem YMCA, you carry out projects in Palestine. Later in this podcast, we will also hear Mejarar from the East Jerusalem YMCA, But first, can you tell us a little bit more about Danish Church Aid and the kind of work that you do? So the Office of Danish and Norwegian Church Aid in Jerusalem has been here since really the 50s. The work of the organization, the office, is almost 12 years old. It's a humanitarian and development office that focuses on three areas. Saving lives, so humanitarian work fighting extreme inequality that involves advocating for women's rights, human rights, documentation of violation of human rights, involves helping create and empower the voices of the youth, mobilization of voices of the youth, etc. And our last program is Build Resilience, and that's mainly centered around doing economic empowerment work in the Palestinian territories. So we work through partners on the ground. We have almost 20 partners on the ground, mostly civil society organizations in Israel, in the West Bank, and in Gaza Strip. 
And what type of projects are you working on and what do you run? I manage one of the most exciting projects in the development world in Palestine now. It's a project centered around youth of East Jerusalem, promoting them as agents of change. So we will be launching the first English-speaking radio station in the middle of February, in about a week. It's called Jerusalem 24. We have also launched a content academy for social media content called Y+. It's based in Bethlehem that helps develop and promote Palestinian content on social media and teach the skills needed from filming to editing to creating the script of the story for content makers from Jerusalem. In that same project, we're also working on creating a hiking trail in Jerusalem. So it will extend from al all the way to the Old City and from the Old City all the way to Al-Jeep. So it goes across of Jerusalem with places where people can stay, places where people can eat, the guides that will be able to guide the tourists and the hikers on the trail. So quite exciting project. Wow. Is that in any way related to the Palestine National Heritage Trail? It would be. It would be an extension of the Palestinian Heritage Trail. It would be the first extension done to the trail. The trail currently goes vertically across the West Bank. It would be an extension that cuts it horizontally to connect it to Jerusalem. And to me, it's significant because it emphasizes on the Palestinianity of East Jerusalem as a Palestinian city. I guess that a lot of people are confused about Jerusalem. What is it? Is it part of Israel or is it part of Palestine, especially after the United States moved its embassy to Jerusalem? We'll use the international law. I think that's our safest approach to dealing with this tricky question. And according to the international law, East Jerusalem is an occupied territory based on many UN resolutions and tons of statements done by expert organizations classifying East Jerusalem as an occupied Palestinian territory. I would like to ask you something about a specific program that Danish Church Aid is running in the South Hebron Hills. Can you describe maybe where is Hebron? What are the South Hebron Hills? What does that area look like? And what is the situation there? What kind of program do you run there? So Hebron is one of the ancient cities in the West Bank. It's referred to in the Bible as in the area of Judea. It's the most populated governorate in the West Bank. A lot of settlers reside currently in Hebron. The southern Hebron Hills is an area C of the occupied West Bank. It's under full Israeli army control. The occupation army or polices threaten the continued existing of about 30 Palestinian villages in southern Hebron Hills. We refer to a lot of this area as Masafir Yatta or Greater Yatta which namely stands for the villages surrounding the city of Yatta, which is part of the governorate of Hebron. These villages are home to almost 4,000 people. Most of them are farmers and shepherds. So as I said, the region is an area C, which is defined based on Oslo administrative division of the West Bank. Area C is about 60 to 61% of the West Bank. And supposedly, you want to think about the area A, B, and C in a way as three circles. Area A is the smallest circle in the middle, area B is a circle around it, and area C is the biggest circle around all of them. The big circle involving the three of them is the West Bank. It's not technically in a circle in the shape, but this is an example to illustrate to you what was the thinking in Oslo. 
So as the Palestinian Authority, or back then the PLO, and the Israeli government signed Oslo, the smallest and the most centered part of the city was supposed to be totally controlled under the Palestinian security and civil control. So the Palestinians facilitated the school, the hospital, and the security of these areas. Around it, Area B is controlled civilly by the Palestinian Authority, but security is a mutual control between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And Area C is totally controlled by the Israeli army. So security and civil control. And the idea was that both Area B and C will gradually be transferred to Palestinian jurisdiction within five years of signing the agreement. The concept was that the Palestinian Authority needs or requires time to develop the needed experience in securing direct borders with Israel. So in order to enable them to do so, they must first control the smallest area, which is in the center, and then they get help from the Israelis in this the bit larger piece, and then a lot of help, or basically the Israelis control the area where there's direct borders with Israel. So outside Area C, it's Israeli territories. It retains exclusive control from police to army, planning, construction, everything in Area C. The majority of Area C has been allocated for the benefit of the Israeli illegal settlements or the Israeli military occupation forces. Who's paying the price? The Palestinian communities. Does that mean that these Palestinians in these villages in the South Hebron Hills, that they cannot also decide and control anything regarded to the use of their land or the construction of houses or making water pumping stations, things like that? Pretty much. I mean, if you ever hear about demolitions in Area C, it's basically because the Israeli army is the sole body responsible for granting people the rights or the registrations, the certificates to construct houses, for example, or even fix houses. And majority of the requests, if not all, by Palestinians are rejected. However, all there's a constant increase in the number or the existence of the Israeli settlers. So Palestinians would go on and build houses without the permission, and then in short time, the Israeli occupation army will demolish it. So that's a constant struggle for Palestinians living in Area C. Can you mention some other challenges that they are facing in these villages? You know, communities in southern Hebron Hills constantly suffer from lack of proper infrastructure to support their daily life. Things like sewage systems, things like water system, you know, basic road planning, schools. Most of these villages do not have higher classes in their schools or they don't have even safe roads for the kids to go to school. They're not connected to proper water pipelines. Do they have electricity? A lot of them are connected to the electricity system, but a lot of them are not. And that's why you will see a lot of organizations who provide electricity for these communities through solar panels. They collect rainwater in wells or buy water from water trucks, which could be very expensive based on the route that the trucks must take to deliver the water. Some villages, there's no paved way to reach them. And only the Israeli army jeeps can reach them. So when you order a water tank, to be delivered to this area, it's going to be much more expensive because it's risky for the drivers. These communities, a lot of them are not allowed to be connected to electricity grids. I think something significant to mention that water and electricity never cut in Israeli settlements. They're provided with abundance to all the Israeli settlements and outposts 
for all types of consumption, including agriculture, for the settlements which are illegally present according to international law right next to these villages. So we're talking about the exact same area, maybe just one or two kilometers apart. There is a group of people that is connected to water and electricity 24 hours a day. And there is people that are not and cannot or are not allowed to be connected. Pretty much. George, what does Danish Church Aid do in the South Hebron Hills? We have been working actively as Danish Church Aid in Southern Hebron Hills over the last few years. The approach we take there is what we call community-based approach. What we have been doing since 2013 is really focusing on empowering the community members of these villages to be equipped to be resilient in their own land. Imagine for a second that you live in one of these villages, you're suffering from major income inequalities, it's not safe for your kids to go to school, you don't have proper electricity or water or infrastructure or sewage system, why would you want to be there? So technically, there's constant attempt driving the people of these villages to leave their communities with the constant pressure put on them from the occupation forces. So what we try to do is help people be resilient in these lands and maintain their presence there. We really think that the approach we take is unique and significant in helping these people. What we do is maybe the best way to illustrate it, you know, the famous statement of saying, don't give people fish, teach them how to fish. We amplified it to another level, I think, because we believe that we don't want to give them fish. That's fair enough. But also Palestinians know how to fish. We don't also need somebody to teach Palestinians how to fish. What we do is we enable Palestinians to fish. Ah, hmm. We're constantly learning and researching some of the most vulnerable communities in southern Hebron Hills. Our project coordinators enter these communities and before entering it, develop as much knowledge as we can about the problems that they suffer from. We enter the communities hoping, aiming to develop what we call a community protection group. This community protection group involves everybody from the community, women, men, youth, elderlies, village council, private sector. I mean, the person who owns a small grocery store in the corner. That's a private sector in the village. Involving everybody to represent the community in finding solutions for the biggest priorities and challenges that they face. So we enter the community, we announce about the project in all potential public places, in the mosques, in the village councils, in the public areas, where we invite everybody in the community to learn about what the project will be doing in the sense of helping people organize themselves. So they determine what kind of problems and priorities they have and what are the capacities they have. You know, often because of the presence of international organizations and the donor-based system, we tend to forget that we also have capacity to change that, you know, and we become dependent on this funding to do stuff that we could do without the funding by advocating, by pressuring duty bearers to change the situation. So we bring these people together and we fight this stigma that we're coming here with the tons of tons of European money to change and build systems and develop stuff and leave. We come to try to direct the community that they have to determine what are their priorities and they have to implement it. So after the few public meetings that we call for, we come down to 20, 25 people from the community who are willing to volunteer and be part of this program. 
And we start focusing on directing the thinking to be towards societal needs rather than individual needs. What can we do for the community at all to benefit and help the community, the overall goal, maintain in their land? So what we do is over a few sessions, we get people to basically discuss together. We don't know the problems that they have, and we cannot claim that we know them. To discuss together what are the problems that they have and what are some solutions for these problems. And then come down to an action plan that's voted by the community. It's one of the, I'm not sure how many democratic opportunities, at least I'm a 31-year Palestinian man. I've never had the chance to vote before. Maybe in a few months we will. Yeah. We will see about <laughs> that. But I, I mean, it's one of the most unique democratic approach where you see the whole community voting on an action plan. What do we need to do? So a few weeks later, throughout our presence in the community, we say we have a few thousand dollars. We want to invest in the community. And then what we also learned, I'll give an example from Southern Hebron Hills. I'll give you an example of the village of Beit Mirsim in the most southern point in the Southern Hebron Hills. One of the things that we have done is just basic, really basic interventions that there was no bus stops for the students to wait the school bus in the winter. So the protection group determined that this is something very needed and the children suffered from them. So what did we do? We provided the material needed for the construction and then somebody from the community volunteered, few people volunteered to complete the job. So it signifies the amount of our work. The other day, also in another village in the southern Hebron Hills, we finalized a clinic. We renovated a clinic. We invested around $3,000 in this clinic. If you look at the results that were achieved in this clinic, it's worth at least six or $7,000 because the cost we invested went directly to the items. We gave the community a cash grant, what we call a cash grant. And then they mobilized community members to come and, and do the tiles, to do the painting, to do the carpenting work because it's the community who's doing it. Because the community has ownership in the project and what's happening. They have chosen it. They have determined it's their priority. They have voted on it. And now there's accountability. There's expectations from the community. And everybody wants to outperform the potential of what we do. So it's quite exciting to see, you know, this project is actually, it gives me nostalgia personally because I sit and I, I hear about how Palestinians were always volunteering and always organizing on volunteer basis movements to change and to resist the occupation. And over the years, we started seeing less and less of this volunteer feeling in Palestine. And what we do in this project is we try to really motivate the community and mobilize them to be their own change makers. Somebody, I mean, could argue, could say, okay, we come Maybe just go and do the clinic yourself and leave. Then the community will have the clinic. But the clinic means so much more. And the community cares a lot more about the clinic. And it costs a lot less when they are doing it. So why not do it? And one of the coolest aspects of this project is how we, and I've kind of skipped on it to give you the example. So when we develop the action plan that is voted on by the community, we say we can do this few things because that's the amount of money we have we'll be able to do this but some of the other things in the action plan will be actually implemented as well because they will collect money from the community to try to achieve it they will 
pressure duty bearers. Not everything requires money. We assume that everything requires money. Some of the change requires, you know, advocating the duty bearers at the PA level. We need a nurse at the clinic all the days of the week, two shifts. We need a bigger bus for the community. Some of the things, they don't require money, but they require pressure. A lot of these villages, they're not represented by village councils, or they're represented by a village council that represents several villages together. So it's hard for this body to represent the needs of the community. So the protection group becomes a strong advocate for these changes. We use social media for transparency. So when we vote on the action plan and we assign a few thousand dollars to this community, we give them as cash grants to the members of the protection groups. So they implement the project in them. And that's also not something that international organizations do necessarily because, you know, they want to oversee all the processes. We tried to enhance the capacity of the protection group beforehand to manage this money. And we use social media where all the whole community will be on a page called the Protection Group of Beit Mirsem, for example. And then the check that we provide the community will be pictured and put on the social media. All the receipts that they paid for the money will also be on the social media. So the prices will seem reasonable to the community. The income expenses will match and so on. We push for self-accountability among the community which also helps us keep monitoring how the project is doing and what the community think of this process, enlighten the process for us as implementing organizations. So when the action plan is developed, as I said, we start implementing and it's just exciting. It was exciting to see that a lot of these protection groups still exist after we leave and they still try to find funds through other donors, try to do changes without funding. They were very active during COVID pandemic in distributing hygiene items or trying to organize the community to respond to the threat in their communities. It's it's exciting. So basically, you set up a structure that after Dana's Church Aid pulls back from that project can still be used by the villagers to continue to discuss and to implement it. It's not a formal structure, you know, and it's in a way that's the most exciting part. Because, you know, formal structures will require salaries, will require running costs. It's totally voluntary. Everybody is a volunteer. Everybody is in it because they want to make their community a better place for their community members. And they start receiving legitimacy from the community when they see that changes are happening. And all the meetings and discussions we had have actually turned into something fruitful and beneficial for the community. I think this is one of the most exciting ways and effective ways in doing development work in Palestine and elsewhere. We are constantly recommending and trying to attract more and more organizations to come and use this community-led approach to ask the community to take the lead in developing the responses that best suit their particular situation rather than us enforcing on them that, you know, we need to do this or we need to do that. And we're constantly trying to engage other organizations to work and use and adopt this approach to to do so. If listeners to this podcast wanted to know more about the work of Danish Church Aid in general and in particular about South Hebron Hills, is there a website we can refer to? We have a website. We've been working on an online exhibition for some of these stories with PACs. 
I will send you the link of that. So we'll put it in the show notes of the podcast yeah. and on the website of Pax. And then people can dive more into it and also maybe have some visuals because if people have never been here, it may be difficult for them to picture the landscape and picture these villages. So that would be a good thing. I want to thank you very much, George, for this interview. It's very inspiring. And I really wish you all the luck with the continuation of this work. Thank you, Kristen. And I hope you will get a chance for a long day to come and spend a day with us in the Southern Hebrew Hills. I'm looking forward to it, but I've already once been proposed to by some... No, actually, there was an older woman in Yatta. And now I understand when you're telling me about it, she told me that I should really marry her son because he was a school teacher. And she looked at me with these big eyes that, why you don't want to marry him? He's a school teacher. But now I understand he wasn't a farmer and he wasn't a shepherd. <laughs> he was an actual school teacher. But I declined the invitation. I think I was double his age. So <laughs> I had a good reason. <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> Danish Church Aid works in partnership and through the East Jerusalem YMCA. And I'm talking to May Gerard, who is the head of the Women Development Program. May, welcome to the podcast. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit? I'm May Gerard from the East Jerusalem YMCA. I'm the director of Women Development Program. I'm based in Ramallah and our work is in all of the West Bank. Can you say a little bit more about YMCA, because I think a lot of people may have heard YMCA and it's very famous because of the song, YMCA song. But I don't know if everybody is familiar with what the YMCA is and what they do. Yeah, actually, the YMCA is a Palestinian organization and it's affiliated with the World Alliance of YMCA in Geneva. Its value of non-discrimination open to all. There is no discrimination based on gender or religion or political affiliation. So it's an organization that's open for everyone in Palestine. And that's what's unique about the IMCA here. But it's really, really well known because it has several programs. One is the Women's Development Program where I work. We have the Rehabilitation Program. And we also have vocational training center in Jericho. We have recreational and sports and cultural centers. And the main strength about the YMCA is that it has a strong outreach program. We reach to people in their own localities. And this is why we are very, very strong in Palestine. I was talking to George Zaydan before, who works with the Danish Church Aid. And they are working in the South Hebron Hills. And they said that you are also working in the South Hebron Hills. Can you say a little bit more about the programs that you run there? For the last 10 years, we are very, very active in resilience projects. And we are concentrating on community-led approach. We are trying to give the power to communities themselves to lead the responses and Before they lead responses to analyze the risks, design the appropriate response, and then do the implementation. So we are concentrating our work in Bethlehem and Hebron, actually. And we are working with remote communities, and we are trying to help them. We are transferring power to those communities. You know, the traditional way of work for organization is that we have a preset activities 
we go to communities and we do the work. But in our approach, it's a different story. The idea is we want to transfer the board to them. So it's a very comprehensive approach. We do not do thematic work. We are not saying that we are going to do health or education or gender issues, etc. No, this is not the way we do it. It's a comprehensive approach. We have people in our core focus. We take into consideration gender and we are very sensitive to this issue. So we try to do our work, bringing all societal groups together, trying to have them organized. So they elect or nominate the protection groups to represent them. They all come together, do the analysis. They prepare an action plan to respond to all the risks they have faced. And then we give them cash grants, small cash grants. We started with 5,000. And now it's up to 10,000 now because we find out that communities are capable. Actually, we trust them. And it's not only that they can run money and manage them as a cash grant to do a community project, not individual projects, which is very important, like rehabilitation of a clinic or adding a classroom or doing road shoulders, etc. So these are the issues that we concentrate on. And we find out that doing it in this way, it encourages people in the community to top up the grant. Actually, to rehabilitate a clinic, $5,000 is not enough. So we find people that contribute in kind. For instance, they volunteer with their work, so they do the work. Some people from the community say, we will contribute with the tiles. Some will say that I will do the electrical work, etc., so the cost of the project is double what we offer. So it's about them doing it by themselves. And it's amazing the sense of ownership from the community and how they guarantee the impact to sustain it in their communities. It's different than us or international NGO coming to do it their own. Can you describe how the people live in the South Hebron Hills, what communities are we talking about and what are they facing? In our work, we try to work in Area C or Area B. Actually, because uh, as you know, or people may know, that although 67% of the land is in Area C, but the population is not heavily populated. Usually people live in Area B and all their land, water resources, etc., it's in Area C. So we target those two areas where people, they do not have control over their resources because, you know, Area C is civil administration and political and security administration is by the Israelis. So we try to concentrate on those areas. And also we choose areas where they are near settlements or bypass roads or they are communities that have a lot of confiscation orders or evacuation orders, etc. So we keep those in mind because those are the communities who face so many risks and they are under the danger of displacement from their own communities. We try to improve their livelihoods so they can stay in their areas. For listeners who don't know anything about confiscation orders or demolition orders, can you explain what does that mean? Why would their homes be demolished or confiscated? Because they are under Israeli occupation, those areas, because as I mentioned, 
We are talking about administration and security is under Israeli control. Israel does not want Palestinian in Area C, actually, because, you know, agricultural land is there and water resources are concentrated in Area C. And they want those areas to be available for Israelis to expand their settlements and control over the Palestinian land. Although these are Palestinian lands under occupation, and they are within the 67 borders. So it's part of the Israeli strategy and vision to expand Israel over the Palestinian land. If you look at what the different projects that have been running in the South Hebron Hills, can you be very specific about the need of people? Like what are the things that they have asked money for and what did they manage to establish with your support? It differs from Ramon context to another. Even they are very close areas and the close villages in the same area, but they have really different issues and different needs. We have certain communities which are Bedouin communities. Their livelihood is different. Other areas we have people who are very well educated, but they are fully unemployed. You know, most of them are unemployed. We have areas which are mixed. So it depends. For a lot of people, they take care about education, actually. Education is very important and they want more classrooms because, you know, in those areas, because they are remote, most of them, it's up to sixth or seventh grade. And after that, they have to leave their village and go to the nearest city. And this means this is very dangerous for the kids to leave because of settler attacks, maybe. And sometimes they do not have financial capacity to cover the cost of transportation. So you find a lot of dropouts from school, mostly who are dropouts are the girls, actually. In our system, in Palestinian system, we have art stream and the scientific stream. If girls want to expand their opportunities and want to join a scientific stream, they can do it. Because it will cost the family and it is, you know, families want to protect their girls. They do not want them to leave for another village and come every day using the public transportation. And most of the time it's not one transport. It's more than one transportation because they are in remote areas. So it's very dangerous and not secured for young girls to commute in this way. And they ask for health clinics. This is also all the time. And what's actually, what's fantastic, once the community did a rehabilitation for a clinic or they have a caravan as a clinic, they communicate with the Ministry of Health who give them the support and include those clinics under their management, which is amazing. Now they might provide doctors, nurse or something. Not every day in the week, once a week, and sometimes it's satisfactory. And because, you know, these issues are most of a concern of a mother than a father, because mothers usually are worried about their kids in the school. They want the best for their kids. And the clinic is the same. When they are pregnant and they work for the family planning, etc., they want a closed clinic. And if they want to do the vaccination for the kids, so they are responsible for all these issues. So they insist on this. Of course, women at the beginning, when we start working in any village, they start looking at these issues, infrastructure issues, the roads that lead to school, etc. After a while, they start to look about their own needs, like they want to establish a woman committee. 
because they want to develop, they want to work. Actually, the approach we work with improved women bargaining power because at the beginning, they have a tactic like saying to men, yes, yes, yes. And after a while, they started to ask about their own needs that we need this, we need that. You know, sometimes we think that women still are not empowered. But when we start to discuss with them, they told us this is a tactic, which is amazing. And they are actually, after a while, become very, very active in the public sphere within their community. We have women who now join the village council. They became members in the village council. Even uh, I heard one of the women that we worked a few years ago, and she is going to nominate herself for the legislative council. And it's amazing. Even if she didn't succeed, it's fine. But the point that she started to think that she can serve in a higher position, it's amazing. These women who are from remote areas. And we have so many success stories for women. We implement also interventions like environmental agriculture, which is amazing. We are introducing new ideas like lasagna beds. And we have very successful women who are working in their own dance. Recently, a story of a young woman who was very successful and using online for marketing. And now she is training other women in other villages, which is amazing. The impact is rolling to other communities. That's fantastic. Yeah. When women are empowered and when they start to see that they can do something, they usually want to share that with the community and then it will spread like waves. That's very inspiring. If you looked at, for example, the international community, or let's say in particular, the European Union and the member states, what would you say that they could do more for the Palestinians, for the people in these situations to support them? Actually, this is a big question, but, you know, there should be an international will. Without a will, nothing will change, actually. And there are violations of human rights, and it's obvious they are against international humanitarian law. And they know even the structures which the EU put investment in, Some of them were confiscated and destroyed. The response to such issues is very low, actually. But at the end of the day, this is a big game. It's not only about human rights. Believe me, after those years of work, I don't think it's a matter of human rights. Because, you know, it's obvious all over the world. But we need really, really a political will. Other than that, nothing will change. and. We need to have a solution, look at the root causes. We are talking about some symptoms, but the root causes are still there. We need to work hard on those. But working hard on those, it's not us alone. Because, you know, I'm not saying that we are victims. We are not victims as Palestinians. And I will not say that we are victims, no. But we are under a pressure that is beyond our capacity to handle. This is our problem. And it's not only Palestinians. Believe me, we are under occupation, yes, but there are a lot of people all over the world, a lot of countries, they are suffering the same. 
So justice, I think, so far, it's a slogan, not a belief. Thank you very much for your time. You are welcome. Nice meeting you. Yeah, it was really nice to talk to you. Bless you and your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Pax Palestine podcast. This was the last episode of the trilogy in which we learned more about the work of the local partners of Pax in Palestine. You can find more about Pax on the website paxforpeace.nl. My name is Crystal and you can find my weekly podcast Stories from Palestine on your favorite podcast player or on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Thank you.